title of the message this morning, if you are taking notes, is Pursuing Pleasure. Now, let me ask you a question real quick before we get started. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us pursue pleasure? I'm going to venture to say all of us. Otherwise, what are you living? What's your life? What is it made up of? As a matter of fact, as Christians, we get the wrong image of what eternal life looks like, both now and in heaven. You know, we see paintings and pictures of people that are dressed in all white, and they're floating on a cloud, and they have a harp. And we go, wow, that's heaven? That, that's what I have to look forward to, is floating on a cloud, dressed in all white, and, and playing a harp? But I want you to think of the creation story. All that God created, it was good. And it was given for man to enjoy. That there is good pleasure. That there is the pursuit of pleasure that God has ordained, that God has given us. That as a Christian, we can become so self-righteous at times and say, oh, pleasure, no, abstain from all things. But God has made things that are good. God has given us the opportunity to pursue pleasure. So this morning, we're going to get back in the book of James. And if you think or if you thought for a moment that James is going to let up sooner or later, he's not. As a matter of fact, this morning you're going to think, wow, I thought the last few weeks were tough. This is even more direct. And again, his directness is in love. It's meant to encourage us in the faith, not discourage us in the faith. It's meant to point out and give us opportunity to reflect on life, to reflect on faith. Because many of us will come together and profess the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And James pens this letter and says, this is what it looks like, though. Genuine faith will be lived out. There will be evidence of it. Last week, if you were with us, he just talked about wisdom, wisdom that's from above, to walk rightly before God, to respond to trial, to respond to temptations, to respond to every difficulty of life in a way that glorifies God, wisdom that he gives us. In Sunday school this morning, I asked the group, how often do we have to pray for wisdom? Church, I ask you the same question. All the time. All the time. You might ask God for wisdom, how to respond in this situation, and by His grace, you walk righteously through it, but you turn this direction, and guess what? There's another decision to be made. How am I going to respond this time? Oh, God, give me wisdom. A constant cry of our hearts. This morning, Pursuing Pleasure, we'll be looking at James chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. If you don't, it is in the inside of your bulletin. And please stand for the public honoring of God's Word as we read it together. God's Word, James chapter 4. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? 
Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So reads God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please be seated, church. Needless to say, no warm and fluffy again this morning, right? James continues on speaking about faith without works. He's dead. This morning he's looking at our response to situations, whether it's trials, whether it's temptations. What does our tongue do in those situations? What comes out of our mouth? What comes out of our lives? He just finished talking about asking for wisdom. And now he starts in verse 1 and says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Think about it. You ever been uh, inside, you feel turmoil over something? Feel a little disgruntled about a situation? Upset about something? Maybe jealous of something going on. He's saying, well, that leads to quarreling. That leads to fighting. But he says, what causes that? From where does it come from? That's what the Greek word means. From where does it come? He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Why don't you stop there and think about that? Because so often when circumstances happen around us, whether it's a trial, it's a temptation, we often blame the circumstance, the people, the thing, and say it's because of them. It's because of her. It's because of him. It's because of the situation. Paul, or excuse me, James says it's not because of what's on the outside. It's because of what's on the inside. And this is so important for us to have victory in Christ. Because guess what? You cannot control other people. You cannot change other people. Married folks, take that lesson to heart. You are not going to change your spouse. No matter how hard you try, you're not going to change them. As they draw near to Christ, He will draw near to them and He will do the transformation. But we are not able to do that. James says here, he talks about quarrels. It means to engage in serious and protracted conflict, often involving a series of attacks. It means to fight, to war against. Now, who is James writing this to? Right, the church. He's looking out within a church and seeing there's quarreling, there's fighting, there's infighting. And guess what? Within a church, you have genuine believers and you have what are called false converts. So James is writing this very clearly saying, look, if it's genuine faith, here's what genuine faith looks like. But if there is no genuine faith, that faith without works is dead. So here he starts and he's talking about first quarreling, fighting, that it comes from within. Fights, this word in Greek means serious conflict. It can be either physical or non-physical, but it's intensive and bitter. It means to clash severely, struggle, and fight. And by God's grace, I have not seen anything like that within the church since I've been pastoring here. But what happens after you go home? We don't have any cameras in all the homes that sees what goes on inside our homes. But would there be some of that going on inside the homes? Because although your pastor doesn't see it, there's someone who's far, far, 
far greater, no comparison with the pastor of the church. That's God our Father, who sees all things. Not only sees all things, but has given us his spirit to go where we go, to be with us, to empower us. It says here in verse 1, he says, it's the passions that are at war in you. This word passions in the Greek, it means pleasures. It's the desire for pleasure. From the Greek word, that's where we get the English word hedonism. Hedonism, living for pleasure. Now, I want to challenge you with a thought this morning. Right off the top, do you think hedonism is a good thing? If all you did is live for pleasure, it leads to a lot of debauchery, a lot of unrighteousness. However, could I challenge you with a different term called Christian hedonism? Anybody want to think about what that might mean? Chasing after God and finding our pleasure or satisfaction in Him. Pursuing Him with all that we have, that we would find our pleasures in Him. Keep that in mind this morning. Because chasing after pleasure could be a very dangerous thing. And that's what James is pointing out here this morning. That depending on the pleasure we're chasing after, it could also identify whether or not our faith is genuine. Jesus warned about those who would chase after pleasure. You guys remember the parable of the sower and seed? Well, part of it, Jesus defined this way in Luke chapter 8, verse 14. He said, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. You know what Jesus said about the tree that does not produce fruit? It's good for nothing except to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Faith without works is dead. So here we see Jesus saying, look, the cares of the world, the pleasures, the pursuits of the pleasures of life. And you might say, well, pastor, I'm confused already because I thought you started off saying it's okay to seek after pleasure. I want you to keep that in mind. God made all things and he said they were good. Remember the creation account. So that's what we're going to is as we go through the study, James is talking about a pursuit of pleasures that are not of God. He's talking about pleasures that we find that are counterfeits. They are unrighteousness. It's interesting that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul would write, and he says that in the end times, he says this happens. He says, for people will be lovers of self. Stop there. Do you know what we teach our kids these days? Anybody know? Do we teach them deny yourself? Pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. No, we say, exalt yourself. You're number one. People will be lovers of self. Why are people so disgruntled and upset? Because they feel like they're not getting what they deserve. They've been told they've been entitled to everything instead of the pursuit of God. So people will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be proud. They'll be arrogant, abusive disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers, you ready? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you think that's a godly pleasure? Obviously it's not. Lovers of pleasure rather than a lover of God. As we go through this study, we'll see there is a pursuit of pursuing pleasure that is of God. 
But here is a pursuit of the pleasures of this world, of things of unrighteousness that the Christian is to abstain from. Look at verse 2 with me in our text this morning, James chapter 4, verse 2. He starts off and says, you desire, it means you long for, you lust for these things, but you do not have them, so you murder. Now murder in this context, the word actually means to kill in the Greek, but if we look at it in context, most likely it's not referring to physically killing, but it's referring to hatred towards someone. Because we talked about earlier, talking about earthly and unspiritual and demonic wisdom being that that is self-seeking, self-centered, that is jealous, bitter jealousy in it. So here most likely we see somebody else that has something, and we become bitter towards them. There's hatred towards them. We know in 1 John 3.15, it says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Why don't you stop and think about that for a second as we go through this text? Because so many people say, well, I've never murdered anybody. Some of you might have, but most of us would not think of physically that I've never physically killed anybody. But when we look to Scripture and the definition, have you ever hated someone? Most of us would confess, yes. There's been somebody that I have held hatred towards. And now scripture would say, that is murder. He says, not only do you murder, but in verse 2 he goes on, he says, you covet. And you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. What you think about this, many of us have experienced the opportunity to, to have little kids around, whether they're our own children or family members. What happens when a little child doesn't get his way? What's the response? Temper tantrums, right? Or if they're with another child and one takes the toy, the one automatically smacks them. Give me that. Uncontrolled. They're out of control. They have no self-control. They are not mature. And that's what James is calling out in the lives of those who profess knowledge of Jesus. He says in verse 2, he goes, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. I want to stop there because he's going to say just the opposite in the very next breath. First thing, you do not have because you do not ask. Ask who? God. Do you know that God has given us a conscience? And we're to obey conscience. And there are times that our conscience gets in the way and doesn't allow us to go ask God for something because we know it's not right. How can I go ask God for that when I know it's not right? So I'm not even going to ask. You guys follow me? Am I the only one there? That there's some thought that comes to mind. You're like, how could I even say that prayer? I can't ask God for that. I know that's not something of his will. But then he goes on in the very next breath and says, but you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sure, there are some that will obey conscience. And you go, there's no way I can ask God. But there are some that go right through it, deny conscience and go, you know what? I'm asking God. And I'm asking God for whatever it is. Now I want you to think about what does he mean when he says you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions? Does that mean we're not supposed to enjoy life and the things that God has given us? What do you think this prayer is? When he says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion, he's talking about things of this world. He's talking about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He's talking about things that bring destruction, not things that are good. 
we'll get to the things that God gives that are good. We know that we are to ask God. We are to pray. But we're not to pray for our worldly pursuits. We're not to pray for things of unrighteousness. But don't get discouraged by this and say, well, then I ought not pray ever. No, you are to pray. You're praying with boldness. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says this. It says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything, okay, ready? According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. So when we talk about seeking God for pleasures, we need to define it by, are these of his will or not? Is this something that is in line with God's will for me? Is this a pursuit that would bring glory to God and is for my good? And church, how do you know that? How do you discern the difference? There's a couple ways. Everybody's looking at me like, I don't know, tell us. His word is one. That we might store up his word in our heart that we might not sin against him. That would help us to discern what is good and evil. But right before this in context, he said, ask him for wisdom. Ask him for wisdom. God, help me. God, as I desire this thing, help me to discern whether that is something of you or not. And church, by the way, if it is flat out sin, guess what? It's not of his will. We don't have to try to bend his arm. Oh, come on, God, it's not that bad. I mean, can't we maybe a little bit? It's not his will. If it's sin, we need to flee. James is talking to a group of people now who have chased after the things of this world. They have chased after things of unrighteousness. They haven't pursued God. They have pursued the world. And when I say the world, I'm not talking about a planet. I'm talking about the things of this world, the ways of this world. And I want you to look at verse 4 and see how direct he is. He says, you adulterous people. Actually, I said that really gentle. I don't think it was that gentle. You adulterous people. Those of you familiar with your Old Testament, you'll know the Old Testament prophets often came and spoke to the Jews this way. Those who would chase after other gods, they would be called adulterers. We're not talking about physical adultery. We're talking about spiritual adultery. That instead of seeking God, honoring God with our lives, we seek other things and pursue other things ahead of God. And I have to say, we need to slow down and think about that statement for a second. You adulterous people, those who have sought after unrighteous pleasures of this world rather than seeking after the glory of God, he calls out and says, you adulterous people. Church, it's much better when we are not only hearers but doers of the word, right? It shows genuine faith. So when we hear something like this, where we're seeing people called out for being adulterous people, do we understand what spiritual idolatry is? Placing anything in our lives that we seek after more than we seek after God. What is our pursuit? What is it? Well, I know we're in church, so we definitely have the church answers. We can say the right things, but what's the reality? I mean, we sang a song before, and you alone are my heart's desire. But is that what God sees in us? Is that the pursuit? Now, again, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things that God has blessed us with. And we'll get there. But we cannot pursue unrighteousness. We cannot pursue sin and think it's okay. He says, you adulterous people. And people are so often to say, well, 
you know, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that person there. Let's think about King David. Was it Bathsheba's fault that David fell into sin? Do you think he could have said that? Well, you know, had she not been on the rooftop bathing, then it would have never happened. Of course he could have, because guess what? We do it all the time. We blame our environment for the way we respond. There's a great quote by Paul David Tripp, and he said this. He said, I can't blame my environment because it's always the evil inside of me that hooks me to the evil outside of me. That's heavy. That is really heavy. Can't blame the environment because it's what's inside that sought after what was on the outside. So I always hear people talking about, you know, the days and times are getting so bad. There's so much unrighteousness all around us. And while I will not say there's not unrighteousness, how many of you are going through the one-year Bible? Don't raise your hand, or not the one-year Bible, the F260 reading plan for the church. You guys remember the time of Lot? Do you remember what was going on in the city? All the men of the city came and were trying to beat down the door. I know we have some young people in here, but I think we can deal with it. They were looking to bring out the men to have sex with them. That was a long time ago, folks. And check this out. God puts blindness upon them. You would think at that point, maybe they'd stop. But then they just start clawing and going after the door and trying to get it. The depraved part. So while, yes, we look around us and we see unrighteousness around us, it is not something new. Yes, we might have access to certain things a little quicker now on your phone and, and different devices that bring us access to wickedness. Wickedness is not something new. Acts of lawlessness is not something new. The same you adulterous people that James calls out here is the same thing that went throughout the Old Testament. You adulterous people chasing after other gods. James chapter 4, verse 4, he continues. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Stop there. Some people get really confused when he talks about friendship with the world. Say, We're not supposed to have friends? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when your pursuit, when your pleasure is in the things of this world that you know you're supposed to abstain from, but you seek it anyway. He says, there's a problem. He says, not, you are neither a friend of God, but you are actually an enemy. You're at war with God. Church, do you realize that when we sin, our sin is directly against God? How many of you are familiar with David's confession in Psalm 51? I want you to think about David, a man after God's own heart, the Bible declares, who falls into temptation. Now, if you know the story, David was supposed to be out to war. But David decided to take a break. And when he took his break, he looks out and sees something he wanted. And he sends for her. I want you to think about who does David sin against? Well, clearly in, in the picture, we see him sin against Bathsheba. We see him sin against Uriah, her husband, as he sets him up for, to be murdered. We see him set, uh, sin against the commander of the army as he has him play this whole thing out. The sin is over and over and over again. Yet in his confession, do you know what he says in Psalm 51? Against you and you alone have I sinned. What do you think about that? Does that mean he didn't sin against Bathsheba? Does that mean he didn't sin against Uriah? It means sin is 
always first against God. Always. Sin is rebellion against God. James says here, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Why don't you look at that? Because we often don't take these things and take them to heart. We read it and go, okay, yeah, I know it. Moving on, next thing. But if we want to pursue the pleasures and we want to pursue a lifestyle that's contrary to the things of God, Scripture is clear that we're an enemy. There's a clear warning here. I want to ask you another question. When you think of God, what do you think of? The thought of God. Because those who have a high view of God will be quick to flee from evil. But those who have a low view of God think, oh, it's not that bad. God will understand. How about this one? He knows I'm only human. You ever heard someone say that or maybe reason that within your own mind? I'm only human. I mean, look around. Other people are doing it. I'm not the only one. But when we have a high view of God and we see him in his holiness and his righteousness, we understand what the fear of the Lord is and we flee from evil. Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Paul writing, I want you to see the words he uses. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Stop there. Do you think there are those who can profess the name of Christ but live a life contrary to that? Yeah. So as believers, we're to be a witness of grace to other people. We're to show them the evidence that God has regenerated me, that he's given me a new heart, that he's taken me from darkness and made me light. Yet there are those who will go profess the name of Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but they'll continue living in darkness. And here we see the Apostle Paul saying, they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. And look, the next verse says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That doesn't sound like a good end. Very similar to what James is warning about. When he says, you adulterous people, you're seeking after the things of the world, not the things of God. There's so much instruction in Scripture that tells us to keep our minds fixed on above. Why? Because we live in this room. There's so much stuff all around us at all times. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is the world order, the world system, how people are chasing after their fleshly pursuits. Nike says, just do it. Just do it. And that's what the world tells you. Just do it. Scripture says if that's how we're living, we don't know the Father and we're not known by the Father. That there's got to be a change in us. If the gospel hasn't changed us, it's evident the gospel hasn't saved us. Colossians 3.2 reminds us that we're to set our minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Christian, talking to you this morning. Do you naturally wake up in the morning and your mind just floats into the heavenly things? You have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to pursue him. 
Because naturally your mind just goes, to, oh man, I got that to take care of. I got this thing I got to do. Oh, I got those three things at the same time. I don't know how that's going to happen. I have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to set my mind on things above, asking God, God, give me wisdom today. That in all that's before me, I'd be doing your will. And that you would receive all honor and glory. Many of you are very familiar with Paul's warning to the churches in Rome not to be conformed to this world. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God. The will of God will result in his glory and your good every time. Every time. God's will will result in his glory and your good. Church, did you hear that? God's will every time will result in his glory and your good. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. We're exhorted as obedient children not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Stop there. Where do you set the bar for holiness? Do you set it at your spouse? Do you set it at somebody else in the church? Okay, that's my standard. Or do you set it at Christ? I have heard people tell me, well, you know, no one can be perfect. I'm only human, so I'm just going to take a human level. Look, if I set the bar down here, guess what I'm going to hit? Right here, maybe. But the bar for the believer is set here. That we've been ransomed, we've been redeemed, we've been filled with his spirit, and yet we struggle still with this flesh. That's why we struggle and fall and sin at times. Yet, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness in Christ. But that's never the bar is to sin. The bar is never to justify sin and say, well, it's no big deal. There's grace. Grace exists, so I'll just set up a storm. James' whole letter say, no, your faith should be evident by the way that you live. Genuine faith is evidenced in your life by the way you live. Verse 5, James, chapter 4, verse 5, James continues. He says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Do you know the scripture says that our God is a jealous God? I want you to think about that for a moment. Some people say, what? I thought God doesn't sin. Isn't that a sin? Well, obviously we know it can't be a sin because God doesn't sin. He's never sinned. So what does it mean that God is jealous? Do we have a clue? Anybody married? If you have a spouse... And a spouse went and spent, let's say, some intimate time with somebody else. Guess what you would have within yourself? There should be jealousy over the covenant you made with your spouse. That you have a, a covenant with them. Well, guess what we as the church are called? The bride of Christ. Israel is referred to as his wife in the Old Testament. Now, we are the bride. So when we chase after the things of the world, when we pursue things greater than him, he has a righteous and a holy jealousy. What does that mean? It means he loves us. Loves us. It is not a sin. I heard Oprah Winfrey once say, she grew up in the church. She was Baptist. She grew up. But the time she heard God was a jealous God, she said, I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. And that's what she uses her justification to then say that whatever you love is your God. If you love books, she says, that is your God. This is where she's at today. Whatever you love. 
But her excuse was not understanding the jealousy of a holy and righteous God. The reality of that church, that should cause you to be in awe of her God. That God would love me so much that he would care when I go and chase after something else. That's an immense amount of love from our Creator. That is a glorious thing that God would be jealous over us. His affections for us are great. Love the way R. Kent Hughes put this. He said this. R. Kent Hughes said, To realize that the awesomely holy God who transcends the universe and is wholly other and self-contained is at the same time personally and passionately and lovingly jealous for our affection. This realization ought to stop any of our quote-unquote affairs with the world and causes to prostrate our souls adoringly before him how we are loved and how we ought to love. As John informed us, we love because he first loved us. That's an amazing kind of love. And quite frankly, if you think about the way we respond to people, if people had chased off the people in our lives that we love, chased off, pursued other things, think about marriage, someone who's unfaithful, we are so quick for a decree of divorce. I'm done. And yet how many times have those who profess the name of Christ and follow after him pursued other things? And yet our God is faithful. And our God lovingly comes after us and pours his grace out upon us. That's what we see in verse 6. So before your heart rips apart and thinking, oh my goodness, how I have sinned against him by chasing after things, look at the next verse. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Church, do you realize grace is something you don't deserve? You don't deserve it. But our God is gracious. Our God pours out an abundance of grace upon us. That as we went and chased after other things, he pours out his grace. But that grace is to take effect in our life. Grace is not cheap. It's not something we say, oh, well, I'm just going to go sin so God can pour out more grace upon me. The Apostle Paul argues that in Romans chapter 6. Not to continue sinning so that more grace would abound. We're to allow God's grace to work within us. And that grace should humble us. Grace's effect in us should cause humility. That although I am but a foolish and wretched man, God's grace is so good to me. Though you are a wretched and fallen man or woman, God's grace is so good to you. And that's why we see in verse 6, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace upon grace, as the scripture would say. Grace upon grace. So here's where we're at. James goes through and calls them out, you adulterous people. Conviction. They chased after other things more, uh, with more energy, with more time than they did the Lord. But here's the beautiful part of the scriptures. By the way, James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, are some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Because, friend, there are going to be times when you fall. King David was a man after God's own heart and fell. So when you get to the point where you think, oh no, I'm going to stand, I'll never fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, woe is you. Woe is you. That I need to be desperate for God at all times. They draw upon his wisdom, his strength at all times. But also, when I fall, what do I do? Or if I even never knew him, what do I do? 7 through 10, verses 7 through 10, gives us all of these. James chapter 4, I'm going to read 7 through 10 and we'll go through it. 7 through 10, submit yourselves therefore to God. Remember the context. What did you just talk about? 
You adulterous people. You've sought after the things of this world more than of God. You've had an affair with the world. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, or excuse me, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Church, there is great hope in verses 7 through 10. Because we have a God that desires that none should perish, but all should excuse me, reach repentance. This is the motion of repentance. This is how it starts. He starts here and says, 10 different commands. 10 things. In verses 7 through 10. First, submit yourself, therefore, to God. If we're chasing after worldly pleasures, do you think I'm submitting myself to God? I'm doing what is right in my own mind. I'm doing what me, myself, and I care about. That's it. First thing is to submit yourself to God. But what does it mean to submit to God? What is submission? Because it's not the same as obedience. Some people just say, just turn and obey God. That would be nice if you could. But first, bless you. But first, you need to submit to him. What does that mean? It means to be seeking his will. His will be done, not my will. When we seek after worldly pleasure, guess whose will we care about? It's mine. But instead, submission is turning from me and turning to him. And saying, God, thy will, not your will. And guess what comes out of that? The fruit of that is obedience. That when I turn from my will to his will, then obedience comes out of that. But the very next breath, what he writes is, resist the devil. You guys realize there is an adversary of your soul? And while we can't go and point the finger at him and say, the devil made me do it, because he can't make you do anything, he is a tempter, and he's an accuser. So first he can lay stuff out there and then say, hi, you did it, and blame you for it. But what we see is, when we turn from going our own way, there's going to be something laid before us by the enemy. Temptation. What that means is when we are resisting God and walking according to our own ways, guess whose work we're doing? The devil's work. Exactly where he wants us to be. And so many of us don't take that to heart. That when I rebel against God, I'm actually obeying the enemy. I'm a pawn. So here, resist the devil, and what's going to happen? He'll flee from you. All he has, look, he has no power over you. He can bring temptation, but he says resist. How do I resist? First, submitting to God. Continuing your submission to God. As I resist, the next thing he says, draw near to God. Church, how do you draw near to him? Okay, spend time in his word. Know his will. What else? Okay, walk in this way of, of submitting to him. Walk, what was that? Pray. So we've got his word. We've got prayer. We have constant communion with him. Guess what? You can't do this alone. You need him. This is not some like earthly wisdom that if you just go through these steps, all will be well on your own. This is all you turning back to him. Turning to the author and finisher of your faith. Draw near to him. And the promise here is that he will draw near to you. Seek him. Pursue him. Think about whatever that thing was that you were pursuing with all your time, energy, and, and money. Whatever that is, turn that attention to God. Pursue Him. 
Think about the time spent in his word, the time in prayer. You know what many of us say? Too busy. I don't have enough time. I think that's interesting. I remember telling somebody, I might even told, told you all, I said, how, how many times do you eat a day? And most of us said, you know, two, three times, if not like continually looking in the fridge or, or the pantry for more food. But if you have time to go feed your physical body, how could you say you don't have time for your soul? When one is going to eventually just fall over, no matter how well you fed it and how well you took care of it, it's going to be done. But one is going to go on forever. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. The next part, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts using Jewish imagery here of purification. But specific, cleanse your hands, you sinners. What does that mean? Put off the works of darkness. Put them off. Stop engaging in those things that you know are contrary to the things of God. Cleanse your hands. But not only the things of your hands, he says, but purify your heart, he says, you double-minded. You know what that means? It means that within us there is a war that goes on. But we have to conclude that I want to pursue God more than I want to pursue anything else. That I want to please God with my life more than anything. That the God who has redeemed me, the God who has saved me, the God who has rescued me, I want to pursue him. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. The next part is confusing for many people. They say, wait, this doesn't sound very joyful. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? And look what he says. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In context, church, he's talking about those things that our hands were going to do, the stuff that was in our heart. He's talking about unrighteousness. That those same deeds that before we sought after and we thought they were so pleasurable and they were so good, saying, put on a new mindset and mourn and weep over those things. Those same things that Christ went to the cross to die for, instead of seeing those as a pleasure, see them as what they truly are, death, destruction. So he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. No longer do I rejoice in unrighteousness, but I see it as God sees it. Instead of thinking it's fun and laughing, I'm going to turn to mourning and let my joy turn to gloom. This is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, taking a heavenly perspective at sin. Because naturally we don't have that perspective. We think it's not that big of a deal. We justify sin all the time. We say, well, it wasn't really a lie. It was um, a white lie. Yeah, it was white lie. Or we say, you know what, it was intended to really do good. That's why I lied. We justify sin all the time. But instead, we see it as God sees it. God says he hates liars. That's pretty direct. Must not be that good. So wretched and mourn and weep. This is being having a contrite heart, being broken over sin. This is all the pattern of repentance. To submit to God, to turn from your way, to turn to him to resist any temptation that comes, to stop in the act of whatever sin I was engaging in before, and instead of seeing it as something as pleasurable, to see it as God sees it, and to weep and mourn over it. And lastly, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Church, humble yourselves. You know what that means? We have a very high view of ourselves, me included, which is your pastor. We exalt ourselves. We think that we might be something. 
when the reality is there is no comparison between us and God. What do you think about God when he comes into your mind and finds you? Do you have a high view of God? Because that's what we need. When we have a high view of God, guess what happens to the view of ourselves? It becomes very small. But if we have a low view of God, we have a very big view of ourselves. Humble ourselves means to look that I have been in rebellion against God, and yet he's poured his grace out on me one more time. Again, he's poured his grace out on me. And the things I thought were pleasurable were destruction, and God has rescued me once again. I humble myself before him and let him do the exalting. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter urges, he says, I urge you, sojourners, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your, what? Your soul. He said abstain. Anybody know what the word abstain means? That's it. <laughs> to not to. That was Mater from the Carswell Road. To not to. I mean, stop. Don't go there. Don't flirt with it. Don't play with it. Don't go there. I just heard a great teaching the other day talking about temptation. And the teaching was talking about when temptation comes, typically it doesn't come like it did with Potiphar's wife and to Joseph. You just lie with me. Typically people don't experience that type of forthright, um, what do I call it? invitation to sin. But typically people will engage in some type of flattery or flirtation. I think that's okay. And what the person said, it was actually D.A. Carson, those of you who know him. He said, we're not to see how warm we can get next to the fire before we get burned. He said, those who are serious about holiness will flee from wickedness, but not flirt with it. Peter says, abstain from those passions. They're making war within you. What do I do when there's that war within me? That my flesh wants this, but I know God wants that. Because that's a reality for all of us. What do you do? You seek Him. Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, man cannot please God without bringing to himself a great amount of happiness. Stop there. Remember I told you earlier about pursuing pleasure? That there is pleasure. There's pleasure in God. Spurgeon says, man cannot please God without bringing to himself a great amount of happiness. For if any man pleases God, it is because God accepts him as a son, gives him the blessings of adoption, pours upon him the bounties of his grace, makes him a blessed man in his life, and ensures him a crown of everlasting life, which he shall wear and which shall shine with unfading luster when the wreaths of earth's glory have all melted away. That's a mouthful, but it's beautiful. It's a mouthful, but it's beautiful. Maybe Familiar with the Westminster Catechism? Question number one. Question number one says, what is the chief end of man? And answer to number one, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You see, there are pleasures that we are to experience. God has created many things for his glory and our good. So it's not like the, the Christian has to abstain from any kind of happiness. The reality is, all of it is found in Christ. That he holds everything to truly make us blessed. Psalm 1611 says this. says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. So don't think that pleasure, that, oh no, the Christian life means that there is no pleasure. Absolutely, there's pleasure that many of us have never experienced. The pleasures that are only found in God, that our satisfaction, when it's found in Him, there is great happiness. Psalm 84, actually the whole psalm is really good. I'm only going to read a few verses. But Psalm 84, verses 10 through 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No, you ready? No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts you. No good thing. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That there are good riches that are in Christ. There are pleasures in him and him alone. Church, it's to seek after him. The world brings us all kinds of counterfeits. All kinds. Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The Christian life should be a blessed life. Yes, there's persecution, but we have one who would give us peace and surpass all understanding. But it should be a blessed life. Pleasures that are in him. John Piper is famous for this statement. Many people know it. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we go and find our complete satisfaction in God alone, that's when we experience blessedness. That's when we experience what we want so bad. We want to be happy. But it's only found in him. That when we draw near to him, seek after him, then he is glorified and we have the most blessed satisfaction in him. Again, R. Kent Hughes said this. He said, God's desire to be glorified and your desire to be satisfied are not irreconcilable. Pursue him with all that you have for every genuine pleasure is from his hand. Pursue him with all that you have. Kind of like the song we sang earlier. We will pursue him with all that we have. Whether or not we like to admit it or not, we are all pursuing pleasure. One kind or another. We all want to be happy. We all want to enjoy life. If you don't, we need to talk because we should enjoy life. God's given us life. He's given us all things that pertain to godliness. But we need to earnestly seek after him, submit to him, humbly walk before him. And I'll end with this psalm, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, church, he is conforming you into the image of his son. He's renewing those desires. So what you thought at first, well, great, I'm going to delight myself in God so I can get my Tesla. He might change those desires a little bit. Not that you go to hell if you want a Tesla, so anybody who does it, that's okay. But if that is your pursuit, if that's what you have to have to be happy in life, then you're not seeking the Lord. Because He should be everything. He should be all that we need. Our satisfaction should be completely in Him. That if we have Christ and nothing else, we have great gain. Great gain.
Let's pray. Father, we once again go through this text that's very direct. But God, there is hope to be found in it. That God, we first see that as we go and we chase after the pursuits and pleasures of this world, that oftentimes we are chasing after unrighteousness. And God, you do not take that lightly. You call out as adulterers. Father, but we find hope that, God, your grace is poured out in your mercy. And, God, that you would call us to repentance. Father, I pray as your church that regardless of where we're at in this, that all of us would turn to you in complete submission. To ask you for wisdom to walk according to your spirit, that we might be able to discern good from evil, that we would know how to walk in the fear of you, that, God, we would put off all sin, no longer justifying it. That, God, within our hearts, that we would reason that you are to be our pursuit and not the things of this world. Father, we thank you that you allow us and enable us, God, to stand firm against temptation. Father, I pray that each of us would look at sin and see it for what it is, corruption. It is used against you, it is used to defame the cross. Father, that no longer would we think it's fun and entertaining. But God, we would get your vision, your sight of what sin is. God, I thank you in the hope that we have this morning, that we can turn to you, submit to you, follow in your ways, and bring you glory. God, I pray that we would pursue you, that we would bring you glory by finding our complete satisfaction in you. Father, we ask for your help. Father, we know we cannot do this alone. So would you rain down continually your grace upon us, your wisdom upon us, and might you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name.